0: Chapter 13, Sunday morning, studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to a single verse this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can see the Word of God with your own eyes as well as hearing it. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. One verse this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your truth, Lord. And we just ask that. Your love and your grace and your truth would just be crystal clear in this passage as we study it this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would just take and give it a living place in each one of our lives. Those of us who know you and are Christians this morning and those of us who stand before you today that have not yet made that commitment, Lord, help each of us to hear your voice in your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. From the vantage point of heaven, there are two and really only two kingdoms that make up the world that we live in today. There is the kingdom of the world made up of those, he tells us in chapter 12, verse 25, of those who refuse Him, that is, refuse God who speaks. And so they reject God, they reject His commandments, and they live in rebellion to Him. And then there is the kingdom of God, which has Christ as its foundation, and its citizens being those that have trusted in Jesus for salvation. And now, as His disciples, we live lives obedient to the Lord's teaching. And the Bible teaches that the kingdoms of this world, that they're shaky, that they're unstable. But that's just the start of things, that ultimately God will bring His judgment against, that rebellion against Him, and He will bring those kingdoms and shake those kingdoms right down to their foundations and right down to the ground. And in the meantime, before He pours that judgment out upon man's rebellion, we feel and can sense all around us, maybe like never before in our lifetimes, the instability of the kingdom of man all around us. There's just this sense that something is very, very wrong, and not just in a peripheral uh, way, not in terms of window hangings or uh, art on the wall or something in a home, but that there is something foundationally wrong with this world in the direction that it's going in. And there is that recognition of that, and as a part of that, that recognition that these are but the birth pangs, the beginning of the revelation of how unstable a world can become and this world will become as it continues to defy the Lord's wisdom and His commandments. But in the midst of all of the instability and and the coming collapse of all that's built on man's wisdom and his rebellion against God, there is the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God that we are part of as Christians is to stand in contrast to the kingdoms of the world so that when the kingdoms of the world begin to shake and people begin to recognize that something is terribly wrong in this world. Is there a place of stability? Is there a place of safety? Is there a way of escape out of this grand experiment of mankind who is so lifted up in his arrogance and in his pride that even when the whole house is burning down around him he will not admit that he is wrong. And God knows that there will be people who will look for an alternative to the madness that they see around them and look for another kingdom to become a part of. And he wants them to see that kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of God, built upon God's word and built upon God's wisdom. And it is a kingdom that is unshakable because he is the king over that kingdom. And that's our hope as Christians, is that when our world began, began to shake before we came to know the Lord... Whether on a national level or whether on an individual level and we realize the foundation that I have in my life is not sufficient for my problems, for my needs, what I'm in the middle of, I need to find a rock, a foundation a rock who is greater than I. And that rock and that foundation is the Lord. And so we then entered into the kingdom of God as something shook in our lives so often to bring us to that place. And our desire is having become a part of the kingdom of God is not just to say, now I'm a part of the kingdom of God and the rest of the unsaved world can simply go to hell all around me and I don't care about it. But we do care about it because we're debtors. We have been saved by God's grace. We know what it is, most of us, to walk in the world and and the heartache and the pain and the difficulty of it. And we want people to see in our lives that there is a hope and the hope is found in the only place you can find hope in this world and that is in Christ Himself. And so we want people to see this other kingdom and we take responsibility for the fact that we want them to see the kingdom of God in our lives individually. I can't speak for how, whether they'll see the kingdom of God in any other Christian's life. And you can't either. But we can speak for whether they'll see something different and stable and sure uh, in our individual lives. And here in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit writes to us of the difference that He wants the world to see in our lives when they do stop and examine our lives and our king and the kingdom that we are a part of and the king and kingdom that we represent. And he told us that we're to love one another like family as Christians, that we're to show hospitality toward one another. And we are never to forget a single Christian No matter where they are in the world, no matter what their circumstance, no Christian is ever to be forgotten by the rest of the body of Christ. And certainly not when they are imprisoned, whatever that prison might be, imprisoned in a bad marriage, imprisoned in a difficult apartment complex, a gang-dominated part of town, imprisoned in whatever the prison might be. But those Christians who are paying the ultimate price for their faith, the rejection of family, whatever it might be, they are never to be forgotten. And then in representing a different king in a different kingdom for our attention this morning, he tells us that our lives as Christians are to be marked by sexual purity. I don't think I need to tell you, but I'll say it anyway, that this is a sexually impure world that we live in in a very sexually impure nation that we live in. And it's filled with fornication and filled with adultery. And fornication is simply sexual intercourse, but it's broader than that, uh, engaging in that outside of marriage or before marriage. Adultery refers to sexual immorality while married. In the ancient world, fornication was considered to be The single great sin of the Gentile world. It certainly was from the perspective of the Jews who were raised with the Old Testament and the prohibition against sexual immorality. And when they looked at the Gentile nations who uh, had no law or gave no serious attention to the law of Moses but simply decided to do whatever their bodies were telling them, they saw that among the Gentile world, those that live apart from God and His commandments, there is one single great sin that rises up uniformly above all of the sins, and that is the sin of fornication. And it was the sin of fornication marking the Gentile world, not only true of the ancient world, but it remains so today the time in which Paul, uh, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, was uh, writing to these Jewish Christians, as he wrote uh, to them, he wrote to them as they lived in the context of the Roman Empire. There was a famous uh, Greek uh, orator and uh, philosopher and statesman by the name of Dionysius, and he lived 300-plus years before Christ. And he declared in terms of the, the morality, sexual morality or immorality of the Gentile world at that time, he said, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. And that immoral uh, view of sexuality uh, carried right through the... Uh, Greek Empire and then into the Roman Empire, where it was nothing for men to simply think that they could have at least three women in their lives a, legi- a wife by which to, to uh, bring legitimate heirs into the world through, mistresses for uh, sexual pleasure, and then concubines for whatever gaps was left in all of that. And then to have, in many cases, multiple concubines and multiple mistresses. And in the ancient world, and in the Gentile world, the sexual appetite was considered to be something gratified and not to be controlled at all. And, of course, we see that happening today. Uh, they lived under the banner of, if it feels good, do it. And that isn't something that's new to our generation or our time in history That has been a prevailing uh, view concerning sex that's as old as human history. And, of course, all of this resulted in a very sexually immoral world that the Christians at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews were living in, just as we live in a very sexually immoral world, and it's becoming more and more so by uh, the year. Most of you, of course, are very aware of this. Now, in order to remain sexually pure in the midst of a sexually impure world means, you say, where in the world would the writer go to uh, come up against the literal tidal wave of sexual immorality? What is, where will the writer go to make a stand against that that can be an impactful stand? And it's interesting where the Holy Spirit does go. He tells us that in order to remain sexually pure in the midst of a sexually impure world, it means that we must honor marriage. That is, we are to honor marriage as the lone God-given place in which a sexual relationship between a man and a woman is to be expressed or to be experienced. And why is marriage to be honored? It is to be honored because Marriage was created by God. It is an institution of God. And when God presided over the first wedding ceremony in uniting Adam and Eve, He did so with the words, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And He encapsulates marriage in three great uh, phrases. A man shall leave his father and his mother. A man shall be uh, joined to or cleave to his wife. And the word cleave means to be welded to. I remember when I was much younger, I used to do some woodworking, and they had a glue called weld wood. And once you glued two pieces of wood together... Uh, With weld wood, you would virtually destroy the two pieces of wood in bringing them back apart. It was almost impossible. And that's the idea, is that marriage is intended to join a man and a woman together in such a committed bond that for that bond to be broken in any way, God knowing that it would create great damage uh, to both of them. And so, this marriage commitment s- that God wants related to marriage speaks of a deep and a total commitment. And then he said, Number three, they shall become one flesh. And so, in the eyes of God, when a man and a woman marry, uh, we become one flesh in his eyes. No longer two, you do two lives for Christians united together now in God's purposes for our lives together. This also speaks of the physical sexual relationship in marriage. They shall become one flesh, and marriage is to be the only place, is the only place for non-sinful expression of the sexual relationship. Now, reinforcing this point, In our passage in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit also declares the marriage bed, and the idea is the marriage bed alone, to be undefiled. And the word undefiled, in the original language, it means pure from defilement, unpolluted, unstained, unsoiled, undefiled by sin. And so sex within the context of the marriage bed, that is when it is expressed within the institution of marriage, is not sinful because that is the relationship God created sex to be expressed and to be in and to be experienced in and not in any other relationship. I think it's very important in this culture and in this day in which we live To be reminded of the fact that sex is God's idea. He invented it. (laughs) He's not embarrassed by the subject, and because He invented it, He is the expert on sex. Nobody else is an expert. Dr. Ruth was never an expert. All of these people who claim that they're experts in this area, if what they come up with related to the sexual relationship contradicts what God has laid out in His Word, they're just exposing the fact that they are not experts at all. God is the expert. Sex was and is God's idea. He told Adam and Eve in that garden, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And it was God who created the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And he's not embarrassed of it, otherwise he wouldn't have put it in the book. And he wouldn't deal with it as extensively as he does uh, in the Bible. The sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is a good thing. Indeed, it is a very good thing in God's eyes. And he declares the sexual relationship between a husband and wife to be a very good thing as a part of his creation. When he got done with his creation over the period of six days and he rested, he looked back on all that he had created, including Adam and Eve, including the sexual relationship given to them, and he declared everything to not only be good but to be very good. Now, why make such a big deal out of this? The reason I do is because the world and the devil have now come along and they claim to be the real experts on all of this, and they aren't. God is the expert concerning sex, and it is a wise person who recognizes that and then submits to his wisdom and his direction concerning it. The average person, <clears throat> I think their concept of Christians and sex is that we don't know the first thing about it because, of course, the God of the Bible is all uptight about the subject. And that only shows their ignorance related to uh, the Bible. And they almost marvel when a Christian wife gets pregnant and that somehow it's occurred by virtue of another miracle of the Holy Spirit, something surely that didn't require sexual intercourse. And that if two Christians do engage in a sexual relationship, then the husband and wife just dutifully engage in it out of an act of just uh, pure joyless drudgery. The purpose is solely procreation. Let's have some kids and keep, you know, the bloodline alive. Any person that believes that about God or believes that about God's people in terms of the freedom and the beauty of a sexual relationship that's experienced by God's people, certainly have never read the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon, where you have a description there of the joy of a marital sexual relationship that included everything but Barry White singing in the background. I mean, it's very explicit, very, very beautiful, so pure, so joyous, so free, so uninhibited, and to enjoy, explore and enjoy, that sexual relationship, with someone who's committed enough to you to marry you. And sex is a sacred experience. There's something about that experience. It's a powerful experience. God created it as a holy thing. It is a sacred thing. But it's only sacred and it's only holy when it's experienced God's way. Well, if the marriage bed is the only bed that's undefiled, then that must mean that all sex outside of the commitment of marriage, that it defiles sex. And it does. It makes sex impure. It defiles it. It pollutes it. It stains it. And it cheapens and degrades the sexual relationship in a way that God never intended. And you look how cheapened and sexual immorality has made sex in the world around us and how cheaply the world views the sexual relationship no longer as a sacred and holy and beautiful and precious and prized thing but it's just something you do. And this beautiful gift of God has been just taken right into the gutter today. And the Holy Spirit tells us that God will judge fornicators and He will judge adulterers. Now, that's known as clarity. There's no way to mistake what he has said there. That is just a crystal clear, straightforward, simple promise from God. Well, it raises a question, doesn't it? It does to me anyway, and it raises this question Why will he judge sexual sin? And the reason he will judge sexual sin is because it deserves to be judged. Why? First, because It is a sin against God for deliberately sinning against and rebelling against His beautiful purposes for creating the sexual relationship and then hijacking the beauty and the sacredness of the sexual relationship from Him to then express it in a way that he never intended for it to be expressed. It is, deserves to be judged because it is a sin that is committed not only against God, but against other people. And I think someone might protest immediately, at least in their minds, and just say, what do you mean? Every person I've ever had sex with participated voluntarily. It was consensual in every single case. Yes, yes. But you still led them into sin. And you took advantage of their lack of morality in this area to your own advantage and your own gratification. If you had a man or a woman who had a million dollars, but they lacked the moral character to spend it wisely and they were determined to fritter it all away, Would you be guiltless for getting in line to take advantage of their weakness and their instability, to get your share of their money? And in the same way, just because a person is morally weak and unstable in terms of their sexual standards doesn't leave me guiltless if I join the long line of people who will form to take advantage of their weakness and their instability and their vulnerability. Just because something is consensual doesn't make it right. And our nation needs to hear that and our hearts need to hear that. Just because something is consensual doesn't mean that someone isn't victimized in the activity. Sexual immorality will be judged... Further, because sex outside of marriage undermines the institution of marriage itself. The biggest casualty of the sexual revolution in the United States of America that began in the 1960s, the greatest casualty of that revolution is the institution of marriage. Why? for the simple reason that in endorsing premarital sex and extramarital sex and all of the rampant sexual immorality we see around around us as a result because of the legitimizing of sexual immorality the reason that it undermines the institution of marriage is for the simple reason that you have now removed one of the strongest motivations for many to marry, and that is to have an opportunity to experience the sexual relationship. And it certainly was a strong motivation for men to marry in previous generations. And today, a man doesn't have to marry in order to satisfy that part of his life. He can find plenty of women to fornicate with. So why in the world should he take on the responsibility of a wife and potentially a family? Those of you who are Christian women or women before you became Christians in this world, you realize the problem that it is out there. We have a saying, Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Why would a saying come like that come into being and become so popularly and well-known? Because it's so common in men in general and it is communicating that the saying was created to refer to men who don't want to get married when they can get all the benefits of marriage without getting married. And so sexual immorality allows a man... To act like a child in this area of his life never forces him to grow up in that and thus in so many other areas of his life. And we can say the same increasingly for the number of women as well. Sexual immorality is killing the institution of marriage. But there's a price to be paid for it. Let me read to you from a Time Magazine, the cover story was co- devoted to this. Some excerpts from their article there, secular article, certainly not a Christian article, dated November 29, 2010. And the whole article essentially testifies to the fact that the greatest casual of the current casualty of the current sexual revolution has been God's institution of marriage. The article writes, In 1960... Seventy percent of all American adults were married. Now that number is just over half. Eight times as many children are born out of wedlock as compared to that same year, 1970. In the 1960s, two-thirds of all young adults in their 20s were married. Now only 26% of 20-somethings are married Another excerpt goes on to say when Belinda uh, Lushcomb argues that marriage is, in purely practical terms, not, just not as necessary as it used to be, she has a rationale to back up her argument. Neither men nor women need to be married, she says, to have sex or companionship or professional success or respect or even children. Time reports, as the article goes on to say, that 40% of Americans believe that marriage is now obsolete, up from 28% in 1978. Cohabitation is now the norm for American adults, not just before marriage, but increasingly instead of marriage. And American cohabitation is an exceedingly weak arrangement. As Andrew Cherlin of John Hopkins University explains, Americans have the shortest cohabiting relationships of any wealthy country in the world. Less than half of all Americans believe that cohabitation is morally wrong. The article goes on to say, if you were determined... To consign a population to poverty and any number of social pathologies, how might you do it? If your design is to extend the effects of these pathologies and pains to successive generations, what might be your plan? The answer to both of these questions is clear just marginalized marriage. Economists report that the wealth deficit of the unmarried as compared to the consistently married is as much as 75%. The unmarried are less healthy, less wealthy, and less stable in relationships as compared to married adults. <clears throat> and to no one's surprise. The ill effects of this condition are extended immediately to the children of unmarried unions and to generations to come. And then listen to this. In other words, it is hard to imagine a plot to bring harm and unhappiness to human lives that can compare in social and economic terms to the marginalization of marriage. The article goes further. One more quote. In 1970, that 68.7%, 69% of all children lived with their own mother and father. In 2007, that percentage had dropped to 61%. And taken as a composite, these leading marriage indicators reveal a score of 60.3% in 2008. A devastating drop from 76.2% in 1970. Clearly, the nation's marital health is in a free fall. This raises a frightening question. How can these indicators fall and society continue to survive? Wow. Even the secular world is alarmed at where all of this goes. And God will hold every fornicator and every adulterer responsible for their part in undermining God's institution of marriage. It's important to realize that God declares sexual immorality not only to be a sin against Him and a sin against other people, but that sexual immorality is a sin against ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he said, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body, but he who commits sexual sin sins against his own body. There's something about sexual sin that does damage to us. All sin does damage to us. But there's something special about and unique about the damage that sexual sin does to the person who engages in it. It damages a person physically. You look at all of the sexually transmitted diseases that are in the world today. Why do they exist? They came into being because of sexual immorality. They are spread because of sexual immorality. Why are there no sexually transmitted diseases in marriage as God intends? One man, one woman for life. God is speaking through creation. God is speaking to anyone who is willing to just stop and say, why in the world is there so much disease associated with this way that everybody is telling me with all of their PhDs and degrees and telling me they're so smart, why are there so many diseases associated with this activity and there are no sexually transmitted diseases related to God's way? And to get a world and to get us. We can't speak for the world. We can speak for us in this room today, but to get us to stop and to think about it. It's the Creator speaking. It's the creation speaking of what is right and what is wrong if a person has a willingness to hear the voice of God through his creation. Sexual immorality not only damages a person physically, but it damages a person mentally Because instead of viewing people and relating to people for the multidimensional, multifaceted people that they are, a person begins to think of them supremely as sexual objects. What a terrible destructive blow this is to the beauty and the potential of human mind as God intended it. the Song of Solomon, after her wedding, the Shulamite bride tells the daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up love until it pleases. That is, they were not to awaken love before its time. She was saying, no premarital sex. Sex is not to be awakened until marriage. And one of the reasons for this is that once the physical relationship starts between a man and a woman, it becomes the focus of the relationship. And then every other aspect of the relationship suffers as a result of it. Those two people stop growing together emotionally and intellectually in a way that they otherwise would if there wasn't the distraction of the physical relationship. So everything stops developing once the sexual relationship begins. And it's one of the damning things of premarital sex. And and, And so often you can end up, once a person begins to engage in premarital sex and Everything else stops developing, but all of this is going on, and you can end up marrying a perfect stranger, relationally speaking. So they come in for marriage counseling. They say, I thought we knew each other perfectly well before we got married. I mean, we've we been sleeping together for two years. And the culture is so shallow as to make us believe that we are really getting to know another person or we know something about another person on some kind of a deep level by virtue of the fact that we're sexually involved with them. But what about the mind? What about the emotion? What about all of that? True intimacy occurs when sexual restraint allows two people to really get to know one another spiritually and emotionally and intellectually before marriage. And then they bring all of that beauty into the sexual relationship. Now you have a depth of beauty of a sexual relationship that the other group can't even dream exists. Or even knows exists. But God knows that there's the potential for it. But it's only found through sexual purity. Sexual immorality damages a person emotionally. And you look at how a person has to harden their heart and ignore the pleas of their conscience in order to become sexually immoral and then to double down in it and to make it a part of their lifestyle. And ultimately, a person has to sear or burn their conscience beyond feeling to settle into sexual immorality as a lifestyle. And a conscience is a terrible thing to sear or to burn or to debilitate in order to accommodate some sin in my life and to silence the God-given conscience that He has put inside of us to protect us from what He knows is only going to be destructive toward us. You think about what dies emotionally in a person as a result of sexual immorality as that gulf widens between an earlier in life desire to live a sexually pure life and then the life that they're actually living of an increasingly immoral life. And the emotional toll that takes on a person is they realize this great gulf between what they want to be what they know they should be and what they actually are and all of the guilt and all of the shame that just it cripples us emotionally some people say that those who live a sexually pure life are missing out on something great the guy says i don't i don't think men were created to be with one woman you know <laughs> so one guy tell me that. I just looked at him. I said, were you some kind of a gift or what? <laughs> it would just be wasted on one woman. I know better. I knew this man. He'd be thankful find one woman to put up with him. <laughs> but that's the idea, is that... If you live a sexually pure life, you're missing out on something great. And it's the great message of the world, isn't it? And God knows better because He knows the heart of every single person who is living a sexually pure life. And He knows the heart of every single person that's living a sexually impure life. And from the base that basis of the knowledge that he has, he speaks to us as his people and says against the entire message of the world around us, you're not missing out on anything except emotional and mental and spiritual and physical damage. That's all you're missing out on. We're not missing out on anything good by obeying God in this area of our life we're only missing out on what is bad and it's in the life that god calls us to is a life of no regrets i remember years and years ago i liked to play a lot of basketball back in those days and of course one of the most famous players who ever played the game was will chamberlain and i remember years ago he wrote a uh, an autobiography And it really captured the headlines when he wrote in that autobiography that he estimated that he had slept with 20,000 different women in the course of his life. 20,000 different women. He put Solomon to shame. But that's not the end of the story. In an interview in 1999, just shortly before he died, he made another statement, didn't didn't make any headlines. He said, having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool. I've learned in my life. But then he went on to say, I've also found out that having one woman a thousand different ways is more satisfying. And I hope he repented. And I hope he came to know the Lord. But believe it. Here is a man who went to bed with 20, what does it say about 20,000 women? Not just him. Went to bed with 20,000 different women, and at the end of his life, he said the more satisfying thing is having one woman a thousand different times. I tell you, believe it. Believe it against the message of the world. Believe it. And as a Christian who is committed to God's intention for sex to be expressed in marriage alone, You have what the world will one day envy if they ever become honest with themselves. At the end of their life, when they look back into the kingdom of God and able to see a husband and wife committed to one another within the institution of marriage, and faithful to one another all the days of their life. Time and life has a way of bringing most people, except if they've seared their conscience entirely, to come back and say, I'd give all of that in an instant. To only know that is a part of my life. Sexual immorality reduces a human life far below what we have been created by God to be. And it results in us living like animals. We have been created in original creation in the image of God. We've been created to live a much higher life than animals. We're not dogs. We are not to have sex with everything that sniffs at us or is attracted to us. You say you're being crude. I am being crude in the hopes that it will build a wall between us in the understanding of who and what we are as human beings as opposed to the animal kingdom and for us to realize that we are not animals and we should not lower ourselves down into that realm in any area of life and certainly not in the area of sex. God will judge fornicators, and He will judge adulterers. And who in the world can doubt it when one looks at all of the pain and the tragedy that sexual immorality has brought into the world and into individual human lives? Look at the terrible price people pay for man's redefinition of right and wrong concerning sex. All of the diseases, all of the death, all of the heartache, the mental price, the emotional price, the addiction to it, the guilt of it. Only God knows what he's talking about concerning human sexuality and the place for its expression. And so even if the whole wide world looks at Sex and views sexual immorality as no big deal and is willing to pay the price, the terrible price that's found on the path of sexual immorality, the Christian is to realize it is a big deal to God and that He will judge it and that we are to steer clear of it and that we are to have the heart of God toward the end sexually impure world around us and to be able to say between us and God God I want my life to be different from all of that not because I'm better than them apart from you but so that as this tidal wave continues and it continues to do all of its destruction that people will see a different kingdom in me through how I conduct myself sexually in this world. If you're a Christian here this morning and you have past fornication or past adultery in your Christian life, when we become Christians, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Everything's become... the old is passed away... All things have become new. We get a fresh start. I'm a a big fan of born-again virginity. I'm a big fan of born-again everything fresh start because it's true. And so when we become Christians, all of the sin in our past before we come to know Him we're forgiven of. But then, even after we come to know the Lord, if you have... Committed these sins, and you have asked him for forgiveness, where sin abounds, the Bible says god's grace abounds much more. You ask forgiveness and you repented. The purpose of my sermon here this morning is not in any way to bring up something that will cause you to walk in guilt or to create discomfort for you, because that's forgiven as we repent, and we ask forgiveness for it. but if you 're a Christian. And you're engaging in fornication and adultery, Buckaroo. You better watch yourself. The Book of Thessalonians, Paul wrote, and by the Holy Spirit, that God will avenge on you as you defraud other people in this area. You need to repent. You need to repent this morning of that and to commit to a sexually pure life. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord yet, you may wonder, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the fornicator or the adulterer? And there is. But the hope is found in repenting of those sins, having a change of mind is what repentance means. A change of mind about those sins that produces a change of direction. That's what repentance is. And so the need to repent of those sins and then to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And that is the only hope of escaping the judgment that God promises here by coming to God and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner in need of a Savior. I've been less than perfect all of my life and my sin deserves judgment. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your Son into the world to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And I put my trust and my faith in that Savior and I give you my life to use as you see fit the rest of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person prays that to God and means that God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit. And one of the wonderful things about being born again by the Holy Spirit is that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He will bring new and holy desires into your life to replace the old unholy desires. And He will bring a power to live a holy life that you do not possess until you become a Christian and He comes into your life and He gives us the power to live a holy life as opposed to an unholy life. And because of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to live a sexually immoral life any longer you may still be have the temptation to commit sin but now you'll have a greater power in your life to live above a life of sin when we become christians we're able to live a sexually moral life it doesn't mean that we're as christians now immune to temptation sexually we're immune to a temptation toward fornication or toward adultery. But it means that because of the Holy Spirit coming into our life, we now have an upward lifting power in our life that is greater than the downward pull of sin. It's like being on a jet airplane on a runway and it starts to run down that runway for takeoff, and it lifts off into the air. Gravity is still attempting to pull that plane down. Why is the plane able to become airborne? Because there is a greater power now in the plane than the power of gravity. And that's what the Holy Spirit brings into our life. There will always be, until there's a new heaven and a new earth, always be a pull down towards sin. But the Holy Spirit gives us a power to defy that pull and to live a life that is higher than where that pull of of where sin wants to pull us down into. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit who provides that. And we say praise the Lord for that. And so Christians, let marriage be honored in the church. And how is marriage honored in the church among God's people in the world in the kingdom of God by remaining sexually pure and holy. And just as we saw last week how brotherly love, really treating one another with brotherly love, will make us so distinctive in the hatred, in the hostility, in the brutalness, in the violence, of the world all around us. as a contrast contrasting the kingdom of God from the kingdoms of this world so that people can see us and come running for refuge. Well, what greater thing other than that can produce that same immediate, Nothing works quicker for an immediate recognition by the world and looking at a person's life and saying, you are a part of something entirely different from what I'm a part of when that life is living a sexually pure life in order to honor God. And so this is the way that the kingdom of God, the unshakable kingdom of God is made known to those still in that shaking kingdom so they can come into this kingdom and enjoy the life that we know and the life that we enjoy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You so much for the clarity of Your Word. Thank You that nothing that's going on in this world is a shock to You. There's nothing that You don't know. There's nothing that You don't see. And Lord we thank you for your instruction as you look at this big wide world all of the casualties of sexual sin people don't even know the price that they're paying and all of this Lord and we thank you for the privilege of being able to live a different kind of life in order to bless you and to be a blessing to other people thank you father for your wisdom thank you for your love Manifest and demonstrated in your wisdom. Thank you for the beauty that is found in everything, in every area of the Christian life as you have defined it and as you have created it. Thank you for the privilege of being able to live and to enjoy the abundant life that is found there. And I just want to ask this morning if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I'm not talking about rededication.